A quick disclaimer from the hosts, this episode opens with a pivotal sex scene from the novel Rosemary's Baby, which could be categorized as involving dubious consent. Please put on headphones or skip ahead 45 seconds or so if that sort of thing is not your cup of Tana's root tea. Rosemary slept a while, and then Guy came in and began making love to her. He stroked her with both hands, a long, relishing stroke that began at her bound wrists, slid over her arms, breasts, and loins, and became a voluptuous tickling between her legs. He repeated the exciting stroke again and again, his hands hot and sharp-nailed, and then, when she was ready, ready, more than ready, he slipped a hand under her buttocks, raised them, lodged his hardness against her, and pushed it powerfully in. Bigger he was than always, painfully, wonderfully big. He lay forward upon her, his other arm sliding under her back to hold her, his broad chest crushing her breasts. He was wearing, because it was to be a costume party, a suit of coarse, leathery armor. Brutally, rhythmically, he drove his new hugeness. She opened her eyes and looked into yellow furnace eyes, smelled sulfur and tannis root, felt wet breath on her mouth, heard lust grunts and the breathing of onlookers. This is no dream, she thought. This is real. This is happening. Protest woke in her eyes and throat, but something covered her face, smothering her in a sweet stench. The hugeness kept driving in her, the leathery body banging itself against her again and again and again. and welcome to another edition of Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen, and with me as always tonight is... Is Stephen Ping, and welcome to Apartment 7A. We'd like to introduce you to our chocolate mousse. We're going to the Bramford tonight. (laughs) So tonight we're going to be talking about Rosemary's Baby, the novel by Ira Levin, the film directed by Roman Polanski, and all of the subsequent follow-ups. Yes, and I actually have a little bit of a personal story to tell about this very quickly. Hmm. True story. So the movie came out in 1968. The year I was born, as a matter of fact, so let everyone put that math together. I'm still the youngest person on this podcast, so let that sink in. Anyway. For now. Um, yeah, okay. I don't know who you had in mind for bringing my dad in, but still. <laughs> my mother was pregnant with me at the time she saw Rosemary's Baby. And as my dad tells the story, she was paranoid at a little point where she was like giving me a weird eye, even in the maternity ward after I was born. So I have a little bit of that weird long-term personal connection to this film. So you could be the devil. Is that what I'm hearing? According to my mother, and there is evidence to suggest that was true. Right. Well, we're glad that you're not the devil, or if you are the devil, we're glad you're hiding it. The um, This podcast is a bit of an interesting one because we originally weren't going to do it. As you know, we here at Black Ink Red Film, the whole point of the podcast is to read a novel, check out the most famous movies that are based off of it, and then discuss the significant differences that the filmmakers and the authors might have done or the filmmakers might have done based on the seminal work. 
I thought the point was to make money, but clearly we failed at that. So I'll go back to your first point. Well, yeah. And if we're going to make money, then I have to sell something. Or oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, goodness forbid. Get a Patreon account or oh, something. Oh, dear. We'll just, the spoiler alert of this one is that the book and the movie are almost identical. They're, I can't think of anything that I've read where it was so tightly aligned. Yeah, there are, well, there are a couple cases of this. I mean, a couple of the ones that would be, well, sticking within this whole genre, really. So three of the ones we've talked about were The Omen, were The Exorcist, and Mm -hmm. Rosemary's Baby, all three of which, well, The Omen was never a book to begin with. So its book was a novelization. So obviously there'll be, (laughs) you know, similarities there. The Exorcist, similarly, Blatty's, novel then became Blatty's screenplay so pretty much same thing and as the story goes the Ira Levin novel was had a couple of adaptations but ultimately Robin Polanski adapted the screenplay and did not know that you could actually stray from the content (laughs) so he basically kept it as is yeah which actually was a smart move yeah so it is um having reread it for the podcast a couple of times it's it's definitely completely faithful there is there's no significant differences but let's pause here and we'll move into the the book so rosemary's baby the book written by ira levin ira levin became a bit of a uh, a well-known author um, generally considered a master of suspense he's done things such as uh, in addition to rosemary's baby which would have been classic enough He's also known for Stepford Wives, Boys from Brazil, A Kiss for Before Dying, and eventually he does Sliver and Son of Rosemary, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, I mean, he was um, I'm clearly a very... All of these, I think, were... Well, all of them were bestsellers, I'm pretty sure, and all of them were adapted into film. Mm-hmm. Um, inter- one of my favorite in that group, though, is Boys from Brazil, which actually was adapted to what I consider to be one of the absolute greatest bad movies mm-hmm. ever made. The film was actually so wonderfully awful. I actually, I may, I may need to go back and read the book because the movie is incredibly bad in a fun way. Yeah, it's been, was that Donald Sutherland, Boys from Brazil? No, oh, no it, was, uh, it was Gregory, Gregory Peck, Peck playing right. Joseph Mingala and Laurence Olivier playing a Nazi hunter. Yeah. And it, Gregory Peck, Peck, the great Gregory Peck, bless his heart, hams this movie up in a way that they should have given him an Oscar just on principle because yeah. it was it was magnificent. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, Stepford Wives, I mean, how yeah, many memes yeah. and, you know, everybody. It's had a couple of, it's had. One film, one, well, two films and a remake of the original, or a, a sequel to the original, so right. it's had its legacy, sure. And I think the Jordan Peele movie, Us, owes it's, a lot to... Oh, gosh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, so. yes. So, Ira Levin had a... Uh, he under, I, I still maintain, when he was writing these novels, he probably had some idea that these could become films. He wrote them well according that they would be films. His writing style lent itself to that, so all the credit to him. The dude knew how to make money. Right. So most of you are probably aware of the story of Rosemary's Baby. But uh, just in case you're not, we'll do a quick summary of it. Stephen, you want to give us a quick summary, if you will? Very quick summary. So Rosemary's Baby is about a young couple, Guy and Rosemary Woodhouse, who have the opportunity to move into the Bramford, a very exclusive apartment building in New York City, uh, which apparently has a very infamous history of bad events happening within it. But because it's a rare opportunity and they get a chance to, to move into it, 
with their limited limited funds, they move in there. They start meeting some very unusual neighbors. And um, as time goes on, the neighbors become kind of a more invasive part of their lives. Rosemary becomes pregnant through means which she does not fully remember, although she wakes up one morning with a bunch of mysterious scratches on her. And the story from that point on really And we just heard into, that in the intro, by the way. We had and we just on. heard that, yes. So you may have heard about hugeness and scratches and things right. like that. And, you know, the movie from that point on is Rosemary, is really about Rosemary and her story about whatever this is inside her that she's not sure how it got there, but it's causing her clear problems and her suspicions around the neighbors, their behavior, even her own husband's behavior. And it's really a story of paranoia, of the supernatural, and of ultimately it's it turns out to be an interesting story about about the protectiveness of motherhood as well right if you were to i'm sure if they were to make this movie today or review it today you would hear about gatekeeping you would hear about mansplaining um right you know she or gaslighting i should say yes yeah so that not gatekeeping gaslighting basically she's being handled throughout the entire book we talked about this on the psycho episode how it'd be wonderful to go back and see it blind again and not yes. know the big surprise. Uh, yes, apparently my mother did. <laughs> mm, yeah. So even growing up, like like you said, it came out in 68 or whatever yes. it is. So I, I saw all the important parts of Rosemary's Baby in Creature Features back in the late 70s right, or right. mid-70s, whatever it was. Obviously, the big payoff is she's being um handled if you will for lack of a better word um her husband's handling her the doctors are handling her she loses her she completely loses her agency at the end of it they she does deliver the baby they tell her that it's dead but then she hears it crying through the walls and the big payoff is that the baby is actually not from guy guy sold his wife out so that they could live uh in comfort and fame in exchange for his wife having the devil's baby. And the big uh, reveal, if you will, is what is Rosemary's going to do. And Rosemary chooses to love her baby because it's her baby. Too late for me to space spoiler alert, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Spoiler oh, well. alert. We, we spoiler that. alert. Yeah, so. It's the devil's baby. As if you didn't no. know that earlier. Right. So that's the novel. It's incredibly tight. It reads... In my mind, it reads a lot like a Robert Block novel in, in that it's super fast. Mm-hmm. The tension is building the entire time. It, it's hard for me to separate, as a rereading it, it's hard for me to separate the tension in the book because I see the movie, right? It's like, it's it's such a such a close adaptation. It's hard not to compare it to the movie. And so there's so many interesting bits to the novel that... It's unnerving, right? There's uncomfortable unnerving. It's like, why are they making her drink this stuff? And why are they making her wear this uh, fungus-filled pendant? There is the friendly character. She has a couple of ally characters. The uh, Hutch, the Hutch yeah, character. Yeah, friend Hutch, right. Who is like trying to warn her. He's the one that warned her, you shouldn't be going to the Bramford. They did have a big cannibalism episode there. And then they had this like Aleister Crowley-like character there that you know, was killed at the beginning, but it's, it's just, a it's a really great piece of work in how they build, they slowly build the tension with what's, what's going on with her. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an incredibly well done story. 
Yeah. The book is, it's again, it's maybe what, 270 pages if yeah, that. Yeah, it's pretty short. Which makes it a, but it's an, it's a, you don't feel cheated. It's, it's not a, it's not a penny dreadful. It's a very well written and very well thought out thriller. Mm-hmm. If anything, and I think, you know, with both the book and the movie getting there, I would, you and I talked about this the other night, in fact, I could make an argument that there's one, well, going back to the passage you read that was read at the beginning of this show, if that hadn't been in there at all, and it just went from Rosemary eating the chocolate mousse to her waking up with scratches the next day, I actually wonder if it wouldn't have been even more effective. Yeah. Because to us, the reader and viewer, it's we get it. We know what happened. Right, right. Um, the movie has a very vivid and, and special effects-laden sequence. The book lays out pretty well, as again was read with hugeness of stuff and everything at the beginning. Yep, yep. So I wonder if that hadn't even been there, if that would have been an even little bit of even a creepier thriller. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's still it's it's a it's a fantastic read that of course led into a legendary movie. Well, and that's right. I mean I, I and I think you're right. It's in hindsight because there's also dream sequences in there which are also blending when, with reality. She has right, a, right, right. the dream sequence about being a young girl in the church, but it's really, um, you know, the, the neighbor's character's voice. You could have been right up until the very end going, is, is she crazy or not? Right. We could have had, we could have shared her paranoia a little bit longer. I could make an argument that if you're a big fan of the movie and you never read the book and you're hearing, well, the book is basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. I would still encourage you reading the book because to some degree, be it ever so subtle, the book did sort of lay out a few things a little clearer. Mm-hmm. than the movie did, especially when it came to some of these flashbacks and what was behind them and whatnot. The only real difference is there is one scene in the book where Rosemary gets frustrated with the guy. She goes off to a cabin for a day or two. Polanski purposely cut that out of the movie. It didn't add anything, so it was a smart move. Nevertheless, the book, in some regards, does actually, I think, clarify a few things in a good way a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless... So I, if you have been a big fan of the movie and never read the book, I would encourage you to go back and read the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, well, it's, it takes you a day to get through it, really. Right, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a really quick read. It's surprisingly tight. Oh, yeah, I got through it. I'm not a super fast reader just because I tend to get easily distracted by stuff. But mm-hmm. I got through it in a few days. Yeah, yeah, super fast read. Uh, anything else we want to say about the novel before we talk a little bit about the movie? Well, because it's really the same thing. I think we've no. I think we've covered the novel very well. It turned out to be the pin that was pulled on a very important grenade. Okay. Well, let's be right back and talk about the movie. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the film by Roman Polanski. But before we do, we have to give the usual disclaimer about uh, Roman's behavior. When you get con- as as a convicted rapist of a child. That's that's pretty shitty. And so we are not condoning that behavior at all. There's a lot of podcasts you can listen to about that. We're going to talk about this movie and the direction of that movie, but I am not by any way saying that, uh, you know, we're glorifying his actions. Guy's a shitheel. No, this was a great artist who made an incredibly bad character decision in 77, I think it was, that it's unforgivable. You you can't move past this. Someday the... And maybe there is already, I just, I wouldn't read it, but someday the whole Roman Polanski story may be told. Sadly, this will be a big part of it. You know, he also had 
His mother was murdered at Auschwitz. He, of course, we know what happened with his wife, Sharon Tate, in 69. Right. It's, it's a complicated life, but none of that forgives what he did. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It's, we're talking about a great artist who is obviously a very bad person. Yep. So, that out of the way. Let's talk a little bit about the movie. Well, before you do that, so okay. I actually... Um, Two things. Number one, I texted my mother a few minutes ago, and <laughs> oh. and she said... Is she going to join us on the podcast so I won't be the oldest anymore? No, no. Well, she's still 39, so who are we kidding? But anyway, she said, yes, she does believe I'm the devil's baby, and her father, uh, her husband really made a really crappy deal, so mm. shame on him for not getting a good deal out when of it. you were it. born, his eyes! What's wrong with his eyes? Yeah, and it's like, so basically he didn't get a good deal out of it, so she's still kind of mad about that. But okay. the other thing, too, is... of. Uh, we're trying out, so for those who are listening, we're trying out brand new, really fancy, awesome podcast equipment for the first time. Right. That was just recently purchased. This is magnificent equipment. I hope I'm close enough to the mic. If I get any closer, I think I'm doing one of those ASMR videos or videos and things, <laughs> So, which I'm not quite willing to go there yet, so just to let you know. So I'll put a, I'll put a picture of the new <laughs> setup up on the... Uh, on the uh, show notes, so you can take a look at our fancy new microphones. And yes. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> Rosemary's Baby, the film. So, again, um, I said it earlier in the show. We weren't going to do this because it is so faithful. All the things we just said about the novel are equally true in the film. Uh, the escalating tension. I mean, we could talk about... Let's talk a little bit about the actors and whatnot. Mia Farrow. John Cassavetes. Yeah. I mean, you have Ruth Gordon, who won an Oscar for the film and, and really ranks among the great performances. And She's right up there with Robert Shaw and, uh, as Quint in Jaws, as far as great horror movie supporting characters. Yep. You have Ralph Bellamy. You have some other actors who basically everyone thought were shot by that point and gave incredible performances. Everything just completely clicked well. In mm-hmm. this movie, as far as the cast goes, and again, I give the very young director Polanski a lot of credit because he got some great stuff out of them. Also, a lot of credit goes to producer Robert Evans, who was a magnificent velvet tongue guy. Who, well, just real quick, among the things he did was Mia Farrow at the time she made this film was a virtual nobody. She'd been paint mm-hmm. in place, I think it was. She was married to Frank Sinatra. Which is kind so of I guess her you're claim not fact. really a nobody if you're married to Frank Sinatra. Well, you're a you're a nobody other than being married to Frank Sinatra. Oh, okay. And during the production, Frank Sinatra wanted to pull her out of the movie mm-hmm. and have her work on, um, I think, Lady in Cement or whatever he was working on. So she was pressured into doing that. But the great Robert Evans, the producer of the film, took her in, showed her an hour of the dailies of the movie of Rosemary's Baby, convinced her she was going to win an Oscar for it. She basically got on the phone with Frank and told him to go get stuffed. Stayed on the film, got her divorce paper served while she was on <laughs> Rosemary's Baby. But Oops. basically, as it turned out, it was a good move for her anyway. Yeah, yeah. So there is a lot of moving pieces, but the cast of Rosemary's Baby is incredible. I mean, it's absolutely flawless. Yeah, yeah. It's it's perfect casting. It's And, and we'll talk about the remake in a little bit with Zoe Saldana, so I don't want to take anything away from their performances, but... The, I, I think what makes this film, and again, we know the ending, right? Everybody knows the ending now, or I knew the ending. And so it's hard to think about what it had been like going into to see the surprise for the first time. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it was the cast of vets, the, the nosy neighbors, they were just kind of like, in the novel and in the movie, they're, they're kind of just like your 
weirdo neighbors, right? Not like unnerving weirdos, just kind of like pushy and nosy and busybodies and they're eccentric, but not in a harmful way, but they're really just getting into your business. And it goes against all the, whenever you think about somebody who's like part of this Illuminati cabal of controlling these things, like which was what they did in the Saldana version. It's like, these do not seem like devil worshipers or as we find in the end. So, no, and part of the part of the effectiveness of the film is these were probably everybody's neighbors in any New York apartment right, building exactly. in 1968, and that's how they came off. There was no reason to be suspicious of them, and part of the brilliance of the film is how is it it slowly, gradually builds suspicious elements to it to the point where you're like, oh my gosh, Rosemary may be in trouble. Yeah, and it's slow and it's subtle and it's so brilliantly and subtly subtly executed it sneaks up on you and then when it's there i mean there there are little things there's a off-screen doorbell ring that you're like oh my gosh that's what's happening the legendary shot which is actually also in the book of the wafting smoke coming from out that from outside of a um, right you know within the living room there's just a lot of really subtle things that you probably couldn't do in a movie effectively anymore we'll talk about the remake later and why it did what it did, but basically the movie, the way Rosemary, the original Rosemary's very baby works. It's a subtle thriller. It's a slow burn. It sneaks up on you. And again, that's the brilliance of it. And it's just, there's just slow layer of incidents getting uncomfortable. Like the, the doctor not taking her pain seriously. Right. The, her husband guy telling her, no, you're not going to go see a new doctor. It's not until, the big party scene when she cuts her hair that her friends are like, look, this is not normal and you shouldn't be feeling this way. And they, and like guy is still trying to get in front of him at that point. Right. And, and you're like, it's, it's an, again, going back to psycho, it's analogous, analogous to the scene of Norman when he's watching the car go into the water and you're just feeling so much tension with Rosemary, get the hell out of there. You know? Yeah. It's, I mean, everything about the film really is perfect in, in many regards. There's a couple things that, again, like I, if you hadn't had that one flashback in there, I think it might have even been a little spookier. It's, uh, I mean, I rank it as the fourth greatest horror film of all time, and mm. I could probably be argued to move it up a notch on any given day. One of the things that, it, and we'll talk in a minute more about why it was a game changer, but one of the things that it did that most horror films did not do up to that point. So most horror films historically even today have really been about someone going out straying off the beaten path winding up in the unknown and facing some unknown horror mm-hmm. you know the orca going out into the ocean to face the shark janet lee coming out of a storm and finding the bates motel rosemary's baby was different in that it was about the horror coming to you it yeah. was the horror in your home in your apartment in your womb which and it doesn't get much more personal than that, and right. that really was like for people at the time it was like, oh my gosh, I can't just avoid going into the water. I can't just avoid going into some strange hotel. The horror could actually come to me, in my own home and my own security, and that was a new thing for the most part within the genre. Yeah, the reading through my notes here, some of the other things that I just remember really striking me as I watched the movie the doctor scene where she finally does escape from her husband. She thinks that, you know, something bad is happening. They're poisoning her. She wants to get away. 
Um, she's actually, oh, actually, by this point, she now is convinced that they are witches because Hutch on his deathbed has left her this book of like, this is witchcraft that's going on. And then she goes to the original doctor for help only to have him turned back over to her and, and you know, the husband guy and uh, her, her bad doctor, devil doctor takes her back. And it's, it's just heartbreaking watching those scenes. And then she has a baby. What else Not necessarily the feel-good movie of 1968, but certainly <laughs> no. a damn impactful one. Right, right. So there's been a, I mean, this, this movie made a huge impact on the genre. So we wouldn't have The Omen without this. We, I don't know, like the timing on The Exorcist, like where The Exorcist was in like novel, but. Well, the, um, as far as the novel goes, I think it was still after this, but the yeah. Rosemary's Baby was a game changer. Right. I mean, well, first of all, it's not even one of the great horror films of all time. It's one of the great movies of all time. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to just pigeonhole it. It single-handedly launched what I like to call the devil made me do it subgenre of horror films, which frankly dominated the next decade of movies. Mm -hmm. You had Rosemary's Baby in 68. You had The Exorcist in 73, which kind of blew the doors off it. The Omen in 76. The decade ended with the Amityville Horror. Mm. Um, you had a number of ripoffs in between. And for those of us of a certain age, we remember it also led to a great jumping the shark moment in the TV series Soap involving a possessed baby. Oh, really? But I'll let you all go back and research that. Yeah. Um, then it really rekindled in the 2000s with um, you know, the James Wan Conjuring films with Paranormal mm. Activity, a number of possession and exorcism films. So... You can make an argument that Rosemary's Baby launched what has become the most lucrative horror subgenre of the last 50 years. Yeah. The Devil has been big box office, and it's kind of funny. We'll get to talk about the TV sequel, Look Who's Talking. Not Look Who's Talking. Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. There's actually a great line in that movie where Guy Woodhouse the husband who sold his wife out to the devil, basically. He's now a big movie right. producer. He's trying to pitch the supernatural thriller. And he makes his line is something along the lines of, yeah, after two decades of biblical epics, you know, these young folks want to see the other side of things. Hmm. And that's really what the genre was. It was coming in a very tumultuous time of the world, of the society in the 60s and 70s. Uh -huh. Now, all of a sudden, we're launching this new this new subgenre about, you know, these theologically based supernatural thrillers and it was huge business right right as masterpieces will do that they will be you know try to get imitated you oh know, sure yeah we're gonna try to milk that for all it's worth yeah and and the again to go back to the acting on it did nick castavetes get john or john castavetes did he get any awards for it because he certainly deserved it he was like he was perfect in it well, Roman Polanski was going to nominate him for Putts of the Year because apparently <laughs> the two of them didn't get along. No, he did not. I think um, this is one of the cases where Mia Farrow ultimately did not get nominated. Polanski, I don't think, even got nominated. I think there were a lot of technical and writing awards. Ruth Gordon was the only one who I think walked away with anything significant. Right. And part of that might, and she was great, don't get me wrong. Yeah, part of was. that might have been the obligatory, we think she's going to die soon, so let's give her the Oscar kind Ouch. of award. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like what they've been known to do with the supporting sure. awards, right? Yeah. Um, but no, I think this is, again, uh, the Academy has always struggled with this particular genre, even at its height. So this is one of those movies, I think it took a few years for people to even appreciate it more and more yeah yeah looking at the wikipedia article ruth gordon won both the academy award as well as a golden globe for best supporting actress in this yeah she she was uh, i don't think there was even a lot of competition that year she was a pretty clear favorite yeah 
but the the scene with when Rosemary finally does come in and realize what's going on, and it's a it, actually that's like the one scene that's a little bit of that's a little I don't want to say ridiculous, but it, it's it's pretty over the top when she comes in. And it's like hail Satan, he's you know his real father. That's that, there's a little bit of ham being served up in that scene, but looking at Guy. When Rosemary looks over at her husband and he's like slinking off into the background looking guilty because now he's been like uncovered of like, well, it was kind of a shitty thing to do. But baby, you know, they're going to take care of us now and we can have more kids. Yeah. The final few scenes of the film play out almost like a black comedy. Right. Which does sort of work. But I know what you're saying and, yeah. and you're not wrong. But yeah, I think the the last few scenes, the film then turns into a little bit of a black comedy. Which is probably good from the standpoint... Oh, yeah, because you've got the tourists there taking pictures the whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. The tone and, I mean, changes a little bit. Uh, yeah, and it, but you know what? Again, there's a little brilliance in that because it kept people from walking away from the movie just depressed as hell. Yeah. Because it's not a happy ending. Right. But nevertheless, the fact that there is, you know, again, kind of like Bride of Frankenstein to some extent, there is some dark comedy within that inevitable and, and horrifying conclusion that makes it more palatable when you leave the theater. So... There, that's that's a deft trick to pull, and yeah, you can argue if if it should have not, but it it winds up working. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen and I are going to have a whole episode on the Bride of Frankenstein and how we disagree <laughs> on that film. So unless you have anything else to say, I want to pause here because I think the more interesting conversation is the Zoe Saldana version because that's more birth centric in that they made several changes to that movie than they did um, to Polanski's version. Before we do that, if I could touch real quick on... So there are two fronts I consider Rosemary's Baby a game changer. One was the fact that it introduced this whole new subgenre that's been a a, a humongous hit over the years. The other way, a little more subtly, it brought big studios back into horror films. Mm. The 60s, for those of you who aren't aware, was generally a horrible decade for movies on the whole. The country was going through cultural and political turmoil and the movie industry had no idea where it was going. Horror films especially, studios weren't touching that with a 100-foot pole. They were relegated to, you know, drive-ins and triple bills at your Saturday matinee. You had a lot of Roger Corman films, the Hammer imports, and um, bad psycho rip-offs. Paramount Pictures, in particular, the studio was about dead. Mm-hmm. Robert Evans described it as, he said, 1967... There were eight major studios. Paramount was number nine. Hmm. And then when a Paramount came under new ownership in 67, Evans was brought in to be the head of production. And he and uh, he and the other, you know, the, the new owner had no idea what they were doing, but they were determined to change the industry. And lo and behold, the great schlockmeister himself, William Castle, <laughs> who had done 13 Ghosts, House on an Ill the tingler he'd purchased the right to the levin novel the rights to the levin mm. novel he came into paramount looking to make a deal and they said yeah we'll buy it but there's no way in hell you're going to direct it evans actually already had Polanski in mind from his earlier efforts mm-hmm. and evans bought it they they obviously made the film and it's it was so successful that that convinced the major studios you know what maybe there's some money in horror which of course led to the exorcist a few years later in the omen so Rosemary's Baby, you can thank, as you, as you want to anyway, for bringing major, making horror films more acceptable to major studios again. Yeah. Well, we are glad that it's here. So we're going to pause here, and then we're going to talk about Zoe Saldana. 
So then in the year 2014, we had a mini-series event with Miss Zoe Saldana as Rosemary. I believe it was a two-part NBC series, about four hours in total. I think event is a strong word, but that's probably how they advertised event. it. I'm sure An the event. marketing people would say wow. that. I think that's what's actually on my book. The kind version of, like of the Rose Parade. Rosemary's baby novel I have. Is that it over there? It's got Zoe on the cover. I, I, if it was an event, I would have paid more attention at the time. Sorry. So they did make some interesting differences. The, the producers of this film, directors of this film, made some interesting choices on this one. It is set in Paris and not in New York. New York, yeah. But Paris is creepy, and it adds to the mood, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Guy is an—he's a writer in this one, not an yeah, actor. Yeah, he's a writer, right. Because writers like writers. Yeah, exactly. One of the more interesting changes they made in this series was the cast of Vets, played by Carol Bouquet and Patrick Isaac, I believe. Um, and I do love Carol Bouquet. She was one of my favorite Bond girls from Pure Eyes Only. They are more sort of like the posh, creepy, mysterious couple— and not just like the wacky neighbors that we had from from the original. No, they're more like old money aristocrats. Exactly. You're not sure why they're so successful and popular. They are and, and everybody loves them for it. Exactly. And they they take, uh, there are some hardships that befall Rosemary when their apartment bl- burns down. And so it's like, oh, well, we happen to have this fancy... You know, we happen to have this fancy lodgings available to you in the middle of Paris and a lot of dark paneling and, you know, ancient cherry wood, you know, furnishings and whatnot. So just all, all of a sudden they find themselves in a bit of a fantasy living there. But of course, you know, the the main beats of the movie are the same. Uh, the big difference in my mind, and I'll, I'll hand it over to you in a second, is where Rosemary's Baby, the novel and the original version of the film you know the Polanski version of the film it's told almost entirely from Rosemary's point of view we get more point of view characters in this film so we actually kind of know what Guy is up to and and while he is a little bit more sympathetic it takes a little bit of the mystery away because we know he's in on some conspiracy yeah and I think is it probably safe to say I probably liked it more than you did Maybe. I didn't think it was a bad. I just thought it was different. I thought the impression I got from when you and I were sort of chatting about it before I had a chance to see it, I think the impression I got was you liked the first half more than the second half. I guess what I would say is it just didn't have the same impact. It mm. just felt a little, I've seen this before. Which suggests the first half might have had more variance than the second half, which I think is probably a, a very yeah. valid statement. I kind of liked it well enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not as good as the the, the Polanski film, but sure. I, the way I look at it is this way: was if you were going to do a modern updating of, of the story and had to get your modern horror viewers to watch it, I thought it was a a good enough version of the film. So the smart it, it, the changes it made, I thought, were generally pretty smart choices. There's a couple it, some of the interesting changes that I picked up on earlier that happened in the first act or the first half anyway. So the film opens with really a very quick teaser of what happened to the previous couple that lived in that apartment. Right. Which would have been the original Woodhouses, if you will. Um, there's a Well, they basically had a version of that character. We kind of glossed over it, but right. the character in the, in the film, that, yeah. yeah, that gets thrown out of the window when yeah. we meet the cast of Eds for the first time. Yeah. Correct. So there was, there was that, but they, they, they put a little more of that into the, into yeah, the because the husband is now involved and he's like right. the he, omen character of like 
beware, you know. Yeah, he's yeah. the, I don't know what you call him, but basically he's the, the boogeyman who keeps Right. He's the one trying to convince messages. them they're in danger. Right. He's basically the Hutch character. Well, he... Well, he's not... No, I wouldn't well, say there the is Hutch. a Hutch character, but he, he's yeah. just sort of the... He's the... Okay, here's what he is. He's the old guy in Friday the 13th who keeps showing up in people's closets saying, you're doomed, you're doomed. Right, exactly. Because he never really offers anything specific. He just is there to be creepy. And while Rosemary does have a friend, a little bit of an ally, they don't really have the cutch. They don't have anyone aside from that guy warning her you shouldn't be there. That's that dude's I think, role. I think you're right. So there were a couple yeah. merging the characters. There's also the film opens very effectively after the, you know, the, the I guess, pre-credit sequence of the previous couple with a very wrenching scene of a miscarriage. Yeah. That Rose, which I think works well and sort of sets the table for why she would want to still try to have another baby, but it might be a problem for her. Guy is more sympathetic early on. The the fact that Guy is actually a little more leery of the cast of Vets early on is interesting too. Yep. Um, the the thing that sort of was not real great was the film felt the well not the film the miniseries felt obligated to throw more gore into it early on just to yeah. keep people's attention with some silly flashbacks and things and eh, so yeah there's like some jump scare kind of things right and, right but a lot of it's handled very well again if I were in charge of the studio and this is the kind of film I had to do to make the Conjuring fans watch this is probably what I would have done. My my only real major objection to it, and Zoe Saldana is very very good. In she it. is, so yeah. So we we haven't yes. talked about that, but she is very very good. If you're going to have two posh characters be devil worshippers, I mean, you know, Patrick Isaac and Carol Bouquet, you couldn't get any better than that. They're both great in that. Um, yeah. Once again, the casting solid. Again, this is one of those things that reminds you of an actress like Zoe Saldana can actually act when yeah. given a script. That it doesn't hurt that her she and her two sisters are producers. So I'm sure they got good attention on that. Yeah. But the only real objection I had to it was for all the new creative choices they took and the fact that they had an extra 20 or 30 minutes longer to work with than Polanski's film did, I thought the ending should have taken more chances. Yeah. I thought Rosemary should have gotten like a, um, uh, you know, at least a little bit of a victory, like somehow Guy gets killed or she gets another little victory. But nevertheless, if you're... If you're a fan of the story itself, I thought the miniseries was a decent enough updating. Doesn't erase the memory of the original film, but it's a decent enough and respectful and, and competent remake. And I think there are, to your point, I think there are a few elements because they did have to fill in some extra time. So there's a police character, kind of like, almost like the oh, Kinderman yeah. character yes, from The Exorcist. Yes. So yeah. he's yeah. poking around. He's there to be a victim. I mean, he, at, yeah. at some point, this film did decide to omen a little bit. <laughs> there <laughs> or more is than a little bit. some weird, like, the handyman who's, oh, who yeah. might be a cat, you know, lycanthrope shape changer. That was strange. There's also the cat that they inherit, that they are given, the pet cat. Yeah, exactly. It's basically, I guess, supposed to be a familiar or something, but... There was no real grand. Well, I think that, that becomes the, that's the housekeeper, right? So that's yeah, like we find yeah. out. So they they don't get explicit with it, but that's this guy is like living in the house. Anyway, they they show that. Yeah. Margot uh, Castaveda, they changed her name from Minnie. She's like seducing Rosemary in a couple of the scenes. It gets a little touchy feely, which I think is fine because mm-hmm. it just, in my mind, added to the discomfort a little bit. Gotta um, have ratings. Yeah, exactly right. Estella, my girlfriend, when we watched it, I asked her because she hadn't actually seen the original one. Okay. The original. 
and I asked her, so what did you notice about this film? What did you like and not like? And some of the comments she made, which I thought was interesting, you know, with fresh eyes, she said there's very few colors in the movie. Um, she did, you know, okay. she was a designer for a while. So like everything is gray and black. Yeah. yeah and the okay. only color that stood out was the dude's blue eyes, um, Roman's blue eyes. Yeah. She said it had an Adam's family feel to it. Not, you know, mm-hmm. almost comical. So yeah, in summary, Rosemary's Baby 2014, Zoe Saldana. If you're a fan of the novel, you should take a look at it. It makes some interesting changes. They're worth seeing. It's not the Polanski version. Any final thoughts on the Zoe Saldana version? Well, per your point, I think if you're a really big fan of the novel and you're just sort of interested in um, what would have been done with a a modern-ish updating of it, it's only eight years old now, then yeah, by all means, watch it. And if you don't watch it, then you know what? You just kind of suck, frankly. You just kind of suck. Because you know what I'm not going to recommend is Son of Rosemary, the novel. Really? Yeah. No. Do we want to talk about Son of Rosemary? Do we want to talk about the... uh, I I think we should probably talk about it because I didn't watch it, so I'll let you take us through whatever happened to Rosemary's baby. So where we're going with this is that we really are going to talk about the sequel to the novel and the sequel to the film. And you and I being scholarly people will get into one of our classic arguments about which suck more. So by all means, and I, I read Son of Rosemary cause you, you basically guilted me into it. So thank you for that. So by all means, please enlighten us to this That's right. written sequel. And by the way, faithful viewers, if you are looking to purchase any of these novels that we've reviewed on the show signed by us, we have them available to you. We will sign them and they will be wet with our tears. Yeah, yeah. We'll gladly take your money and good luck to you after that. Right. Anyway, take us through. Uh, take us through whatever happened to Rosemary's Baby. Was it a TV movie? Oh, I've got it. Oh, yeah. You, you got. To go? I didn't see it. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. So, 1976, the first official sequel to Rosemary's Baby in any format came out. It was a direct to TV. It's like an ABC or NBC movie of the week called Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. So just a quick summary of it. Um, This picks up five or six years after the original film because Andy slash Adrian, the baby, is now five or six years old. Rosemary, now played by Patty Duke, who was actually originally in the running to play Rosemary in the original film, interestingly enough. She takes, escapes the Castavet compound with, uh, with, with the baby, the boy, now Adrian, they try to make their way across country to get back together with Guy, who is now a big t- big shot movie producer in Hollywood, but still very much a toady for the cast of Vets. Along the way, she loses she loses Adrian to a two bit hooker. So as they're as she's referred to, played by the great Tina Louise. Tina Louise, isn't that Ginger? That was Ginger from mm-hmm. Gilligan's Island, right? So uh, who then uh, Rosemary winds up being driven off into oblivion by a ghost bus. Tina Louise then takes, um, this is how it happened. Tina Louise then takes, uh, who's now under the control of the cast of Vets, she kidnaps Adrian. We then flash ahead 20 some odd years later, like 25 years later, to which now suspiciously still looks like 1976. But let's not worry about that. The world apparently froze in 1976. Mm-hmm. Tina Louise's character is now keeping the now adult Luke Skywalker looking Adrian <laughs> under her under her control he's this disenchanted young man who doesn't understand what's how ha- these strange visions he has in his life and he doesn't know what happened to his parents in these powerful 
urges that come over him to do bad things. Little does he know that the cast of Vets, Ruth Gordon still is in this one. Bless her heart. She's totally just cashing money Taking at this point. Taking a check. Bless yep. her heart. She's, Working woman. She's fun. The cast of Vets are keeping him under control so that when he hits the age of 30, that they'll have this big ceremony to determine if he's still worthy of um, bringing his real father into the world. And if not, then they have to cut bait with him and move on to a new kid. Long story short... This film then sort of turns into Carrie, where uh, you know he does go through the ceremony. He turns into a, a a rock star and kills everybody in the casino that he's living in, totally off screen because that would have cost money. Uh, he winds up in a mental institution, gets escapes the mental institution with the help of the beautiful Doctor Donna Mills, who turns out to be an agent of the Castavets, who then I don't want to get too explicit about this, but she takes advantage of his own hugeness in a hotel while he's drugged oh, no. so that she can impregnate herself with his seed to bring on the next Rosemary's baby, if you will. And the thing about this is, so it's an hour and 40 minute long movie without commercials. By about an hour and 35 minutes, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, it doesn't feel like we're going to get any great resolution anytime soon and we're almost out yeah. of movie. Right. And then the most... Something more horrifying than the original film and anything else combined finally hit me, and I was actually terrified. It occurred to me, 1976 TV movie. Oh my gosh, they were planning to make this a pilot for a TV series, weren't mm. they? And I think that's where they're going to do, because the movie basically ends with Adrian escaping. He's running down the freeway in a what we in a fugitive-like way. The cast of vets are going to welcome their new grandbaby. And we realized this didn't actually end, but we might try to get a few seasons out of it, and these cast members will appear on Battle of the Network Stars. None of that happened, <laughs> but basically, that's what you got. It's bad. It's 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 the story itself isn't terrible, but it's it's actually hilariously badly executed. So it's it's worth it for a laugh, if not actual good movie. There's actually like one hilarious shot in the movie where as they get ready for the ceremony and it's Adrian's 30th birthday, I guess they pan from this shot on the wall of this ominous demonic figure in the painting. They then the shot tilts down to a birthday cake <laughs> and then pans over to Roman Castavet opening this box full of joints that he's going to pull one out to give to Adrian. And you're watching as you're like, this is really, really bad, but it's funny and I'm laughing. Right? So as opposed to the next sequel, we're going to talk about this was hilariously bad not just, I wish I, I could be struck blind bad. So you and I are men of science. I did not have the wherewithal to watch that TV movie. Would you recommend it to our viewers? Or listeners, I guess they are. I'm hesitant to do that unless you really are a fan of bad cinema. It's not going to do you any good as a fan of the original film, even if you're a completist. It's not going to help you because it really doesn't do a whole lot for the mythology. But if you really are a completist and a fan of bad cinema and a fan of the original film, and you have just money you want to throw out the window, <laughs> then by all means. In fact, or you know what? How did you find it? Was it streaming? Did you have to buy a VHS Oh, I bought the tape? DVD because I'm stupid, <laughs> and I was drinking at the time. So anybody who wants to watch it, come over to my place with a case of beer, and I'll be happy to entertain you with it. Maybe maybe I'll, I will set up that Patreon by the end of this episode so you can be reimbursed. <laughs> 
Okay, so I, I can't really add anything. I didn't see it. It sounds interesting. I bet you want to watch it now, though. Well, I will say this. We're, you know, spoiler alert, I'm about to really trash Son of Rosemary. And when we did the pre-show notes of this, the plot that you described is actually more interesting and more coherent than the plot of Son of Rosemary. It's actually, and again, I'll say this, it's actually not a terrible plot. If I mean, yeah. you and I had a good discussion the other day about how, we, how a sequel should have been done, but all said and done, the plot isn't terrible. It's just, I mean, TV, movie, uh, well, let's put it this way. The 70s were a great era for made-for-TV horror films. I mean, you and I grew up. We were scared shitless by a trilogy of terror, by right. gargoyles. Um, one of my favorite movies is, of course, Killdozer, <laughs> of which we could do an episode on, but won't. Stephen E. keeps trying to get me to do an episode on Killdozer, but it's not happening. It's better than it, but I would I would be inclined as to put... I, as I talk about poking my eyes out with Senator <laughs> Rosemary, but how dare I stoop to Killdozer. Anyway, I'm sorry. Well, I, I would put this toward the bottom of that pile, but nevertheless, it's, uh, uh, you know... It's 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 an interesting watch from a a historical standpoint. All right, now on to the good news. Yeah, let's <laughs> pause. We'll do a we'll do our little bumper, and then we'll get into the big stuff. Listeners, faithful listeners, gentle listeners, we have gone through some dark roads together we went through the sequels to psycho we went through the sequels to jaws oh dear in the three years we have been working on this podcast never have i read a novel and thought was this actually written by somebody under a pseudonym it's like it there was no similarity other than maybe the anagram things it had none of the tension it had none of the panache it had none it was son of rosemary and Rest Ira Levin's soul. I mean, he is a master, but this, it was a terrible novel. Steven You're looking said. at me like you want me to say something. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, back me up. Well, on I this. have little to add to that. Yeah. It, you read it first, and, and bless your heart for that. But you were that guy who said, wow, this tastes really bad. I think it might be toxic. Here, give it a taste. And then I tasted it because I'm stupid that way. But, yeah, it's, I, I do sort of, I think the good equivalency is to Psycho 2 and Psycho House that we talked about in that episode. Same author of the original, but a magnificent drop in quality. Uh, yeah. Granted, a lot of time had passed and, you know, people have alimony payments to make and things like that. The, but Son of Rosemary plays like, it actually plays like really bad fan fiction, which is one of the things that sort of sticks out very early on in it. The other thing that for me made it sort of disturbing was that, um, and there's a dedication at the very beginning of the book of For Me a Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing plays out like it's a really creepy sort of love fest for Me a Pharaoh on Ira Levin's part that really, in a couple cases, particular scenes of suggested, well, not even suggested, but moving into the realm of incest and, and yeah. it just, it's. There's a underlying creepiness to the ineptitude of the whole thing. That even the prose is, is just felt first draft like. It did. It's like the the novel opens with the character. He's walking down the street and he's having. He's very happy with how things are going, and then he's hit by a bus. It just it it's really lazy writing. I mean, we always talk about show the reader, don't tell the reader. There's a lot of like these instances of, instances of, and then they went to a fancy restaurant. 
And then they just, just like, dude, there's no character in, in this movie. Anyway, let me, let me talk a little bit about the plot for our readers, just so that you guys don't have to read it. Yeah, Basically, would you explain it to me, by the way? Yeah. So here's the gist of the novel. The, like I said, the novel opens with this dude being hit by a bus really out of nowhere. We will later find out that he was one of the last of the Castavet The cabal, cult or whatever, yeah. Cabal, yeah. Rosemary awakens from a coma after, and apparently she's been in a coma for the last 25 years or so. Before she went into her coma, she'd been raising... It was 30 some odd years, right? Or something like that. I think it's 25 because okay, the significance sorry. is, the significance, you know, flashing forward is it's the year 1999. So oh, they're right. about yeah, to yeah, roll yeah. over and yeah. Andy slash Adrian is about to turn 33, which is... I've clearly started erasing portions of this book from my mind. Exactly right. So she had raised Andy slash Adrian for six years, fell into a coma. It's now about 25 years later in a, it's not even a plot twist. It's something we see coming. There's some character named Andy who's now incredibly charismatic and he's this cult-like figure that every, everybody on the planet loves so much that they're all walking around with I love Andy buttons. He's like the modern day 1999 Gandhi where he's just idolized and um, there is there is some politics in it right and left they talk about that and both sides love him the the church loves him and because it's 1999 coming up on the millennium Andy and his organization uh, the children of God I believe they are something like that, yeah. yeah are going to have this big peace ceremony of this candle lighting ceremony where everybody on the entire planet is going to light candles at the same time Rosemary has woken up from this coma and she says, hey, that's my Andy. They get back together. Andy immediately brings her back in the fold, makes her into like her her marketing, his marketing leader. And then, of course, starts flirting with her because he wants to. Nobody understands me the way you do, mom. Hey, come over here. And because apparently Ira Levin really liked Mia Farrow. Yeah. And it's at least one gets uh, that impression. It's a little creepy. That's a lot creepy, actually. But apparently the rationale of it is like Andy recognizes. And we, we have this problem with like the later Omen movies as, as well of like, if you're the son of the devil or whatever, what do you do with your life? And so he has sworn off his allegiances to his dad, but he really does love mom. And mom's the only one that understands him, even though she's been in a coma for the last 25 years. So... It's just like the plot really doesn't go anywhere for a while. I mean, they've they've done this setup, but most of the plot is like her trying to figure out, is Andy a good guy or a bad guy? She, I don't know. Anyway, so that's kind of like going around. There's about another 200 pages. And at some point, the big ceremony does happen. And Rosemary's starting to suspect that maybe Andy's not on the level and he is still in cahoots with his satanic father. She has the candles checked out. Are they explosives or something? No, they're all fine. Don't worry about it. But we realize that the candles really are poisoned. And when everybody starts lighting them up, there's mass chaos across the planet as everybody starts dying off from this toxin that is released from the candles. And as she looks out upon the vast wasteland of city burning, the devil shows up has crucified Andy, the real devil at this point. Who's actually one of the guy, one of Andy's uh, 
confidants who was somebody who Rosemary was about to have a relationship with. So right, right. we have to have the obligatory twist. Yes, yes. So, the, yeah, the the cool old guy really turns out to be the devil, drags Rosemary down to hell, basically, drags her down to hell, and then she wakes up. And not only was all of the book a dream sequence, all of Rosemary's Baby, the first novel, is a dream sequence. And she's still married to Guy, and Hutch is still alive. But is it a dream sequence? Because there's some similarities of things. And so we don't realize, we don't know if she actually has had a dream or if she's in purgatory. And we have an explicit rating on this podcast. And so I'm going to use it now. It's a fucking mess. This book is a mess. Um, yeah. And yet you still want to talk ill of Killdozer. <laughs> I can't disagree with anything you said. In fact, I'm actually kind of angry at you for goading me into reading it. But in the interest of science and this highly profitable podcast and our friends in Poland, I went ahead and read it. Yes, the, the biggest, along with everything you said, there's actually some, early on, there's some semblance of what could have been maybe a kind of okay story. I mean, we're basically turning into the Omen, granted. It's basically Omen Final Conflict mixed with Conflict. a little Halloween 3. But, you know, you would have thought, so everything that was laid out early on with the implications of Andy fall right into the Book of Revelation. So, okay, cool. We we get that. There's, you know, a little bit of, of pulling 30 coins into it as well. Yeah. Okay, fine. But ultimately, the, the, the some of the biggest crimes were there is almost no, nothing happens in this damn book. Yeah. There's no suspense, no slow build to anything. It's just, here's how bad it was. When we finally got to the reveal of what the candles really were about, I literally don't know or remember how anyone reached that conclusion. Mm -hmm. It's so awkwardly and, you know, sluggishly handled getting to that point that there's no great aha, there's nothing. It's just, oh, I guess somebody figured that out. And, of course, the ending is just a, a fantastic cheat. Yeah. So... No, it, it's a... T and again, that's why I say the whole thing felt like sloppy first draft fan fiction. I'm sure I... Well, I think wasn't this... You know, someone... Feedback basically sort of goaded him into writing this, I guess. Yeah, I read somewhere that he was like, oh, that's a great idea. You should write that book. And yeah. maybe... I think it was just a few years before he passed away. I believe it was written in 97 or published in 97. So it's actually a couple of years yeah. before 99. But still, it's like... I don't know... It, no, it's, it's just badly done. It, it's 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 just, it's badly done. The story is badly thought out. You know, I, I, early on I'm thinking, oh, this will be interesting. When we get to the last chapter or so, she'll finally find Andy. There'll be great revelations, and then like two chapters in, oh, there he is, and they're hanging out. Yeah. yeah. So it. Hey, mom, and he's like flirting with her. Hey. Right. Yeah, so there's everything about this is just sloppy and <laughs> sad in many ways. So. No, again, where look what's happened to Rosemary's Baby was not a very good movie. In fact, it was bad, but it was at least had a better story and was amusingly bad. Son of Rosemary is just painfully bad. Yeah. And, and, and sad, frankly. So if you're a completist and you have OCD, you're going to read that book, whether I tell you you shouldn't or not. But, uh, you know, just to be our Christian duty is to tell you, please don't. No, don't, don't. Yeah. Gosh sake, don't. Read Killdozer. Which was actually a short story, and it was a good one. So. <laughs> All right, we're going to pause here and then do a little bit of housekeeping. Nobody has taken us up on our generous offer to sign some of our 
previously read books and mail them to them. I'm highly shocked. Yeah. I Don't you want something signed by some podcasters? No. Who had nothing to do with the original? Yeah. Why yeah, wouldn't you want exactly. that? Exactly. But we did get a tweet. So somebody asked us on Twitter, James Yoder, um, who I also know from the gaming community. Black Ink Red Film had either of you read Fred Saberhagen's Dracula tape and or its follow-up, The Holmes Dracula File. Curious what you two make of them. And the short answer is, no, I haven't read either. Uh, so I can't comment on it. I have not either. Um, I, you know, just a little bit. So apparently... These were written quite a while back, too. So uh, Saberhagen had a, a few different series, like Berserker, and I think it was one of them. So He's one of our our uh, appendix and authors from the gaming side. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So apparently the Empire books... Empire of the East? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this was part... Of, he'd done a, a, essentially a nine-part series, Dracula series, mm-hmm. of which Dracula tapes and what Holmes and Dracula, whatever, were, were part of, and a number of others, so... No, I have not read them either. I just the limited research I did. Dracula tape sounds interesting because it's basically the Stoker novel from Dracula's standpoint. And from what I read, it's kind of interesting because Dracula's a bit snarky in, sure. in the narrative as you'd expect him to be. I'm honestly not willing to commit myself to a nine series Dracula set at this point. But if it, it sounds interesting, and if anybody England James have have read it and have uh, feedback on it. I'd, I'd really be interested because they again they sound interesting and have generally gotten good reviews. So yeah, they so sound fun. James, if you have any thoughts on it, send us a tape or a recording, and we'll we'll have you on the air. I did try to read Dracula Unbound a couple months ago when we were doing the Dracula episode, written by Brian Aldiss, I believe it was, and I only got it through about two chapters of that, and I'm like, this is not my cup of tea either. It was like sci-fi Dracula. Oh well. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm not. I'm one not one could probably not run out of Dracula fiction if they really set them, yeah, their minds upon it. He's a popular him. character. By the way, just this came in a little while ago. So apparently, I you know I mean the thing I talked said about my mother a little while ago. So apparently, my parents just had a discussion about this a few minutes ago. My father texted me back and said, said, yeah, don't blame me or the devil. I would look into the mailman. So oh. I just want to leave it at that. Oh, okay. Well, just kidding. We, just kidding. Yeah, just unearthing the family <laughs> drama right here. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening. I don't know what we're doing next. I don't know if we have anything planned, but you know. Well, we've. You whatever know. it will be, it will be fantastic. I'm still reading Omen books, or I'm getting ready to read my Omen books. So I'm still committed to doing some of that Omen stuff. I love the Omen. Well, as usual, anybody who has suggestions, we're reasonably open to them. We could stick with this devil made me do it theme of the omen of the Amityville horror, yeah. the exorcist. I mean, we've already sort of, we've broken our own rules any number of times. So we're open to suggestions. Killdozer, of course, is on the plate. Yep. We're, we're certainly open to it. I think from the reading point of view, this is actually, so I think I told you I read Joyland recently. I read the Institute recently. Right, right. I'm, oh, we just read, I just read Jerusalem's Lot, which yes, was very yes, interesting. Yes. Um, I didn't, you know, I read that 40 years ago. Right. Um, I didn't just realize that's that's pure Lovecraft horror. Sure. And I'm currently going through The Exorcist. So that's what's on the reading list. Um, so, I'm, you know, we could do The Exorcist as an episode. Sure. Obviously. And, you know, we can always move into Clive Barker territory. I thought we've had a few yeah. requests for like Hell, Hellraiser, Hellbound Heart. I did just else. read all those. I read Hellbound Heart yeah. recently, which is incredibly tight. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so they he packs a whole movie into like maybe 100 pages. Yeah, and really. I read, it's a there short, was like a, yeah. A bridge book between the toll, Hellraiser the Toll, which I read, mm-hmm. 
which is a uh, little bridge novella written by some other dude. But are we willing to watch nine Hellraiser movies? No. I'll, re- I'll watch two, maybe three. I'm I not, have nine Hellraiser movies not, at home, I'm I think. I'm not going to watch nine. All right, everybody. <laughs> uh, we do have some fancy new equipment, as Stephen E. said, so hopefully the audio quality was great on this. I guess we'll find out. But thank you so much for listening, as always. Thank you much. Good night. Black Ink Red Film would like to thank Nisha for their reading from the novel Rosemary's Baby. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.